This podcast may include adult content. Found Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com slash donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have two stories, Carlton on the Verge by Robert Sachs and Such Simple Words by Len Kruger. Carlton on the Verge, written and read by Robert Sachs. Listening time, 5 minutes, 48 seconds. Carlton on the Verge by Robert Sachs. Carlton tries to please, but ends up pleasing few. With his ex-wife Gloria, it's about sex. She wants it rough and often. But rough is out of the question. Where does she get these ideas? And his often is not often enough for her. They divorced two years ago and plan to live apart as soon as she finds a job. With his teen twins, Rodney and Teresa, it's about buy me this, buy me that. He's not a wealthy man, and he's learned the value of a dollar. But his kids are not sympathetic. You might conclude the poor schmuck is doomed. Could be. In walks Lucy Kaczynski, his squeeze from college. In a marriage that's on the rocks and looking for love in Lomax's deli. Carlton, gnawing on a brisket sandwich, invites her to sit down. She's got a goat cheese salad. Looks great. Lucky, not the salad. You weren't at the 20th, she says. We had a ball. Remember Ty Dickerson? Used to love that guy. Looks like a fat slob these days. Carlton pulls in his stomach. You look terrific, though. Carlton thanks Lucky and returns the compliment. As things are wont to do, one leads to another, and they're up in her apartment banging away. Like old times, although he's never actually screwed Lucky in college. But he's sure someone had. Anyway, they get to talking. He mentions the divorce and that they're still living together until she could find a job. Bummer, she says. They make plans to see one another the following day. Carlton worries that she'll want to have sex again, and him with the drooping libido. But wait and see, don't prejudge. At work, Carlton puts the memo his boss wanted, ASAP, on his desk. Three days go by. It's still unread. Carlton worked on it day and night for a week. It was supposed to be important, but Mr. Big Shot seems to have changed his mind, and so the memo sits, and Carlton fumes. But the boss must have his reasons. He is, after all, the boss. Actually, the boss's son, but same thing when it comes right down to it. Carlton tries to think of something else. Lucky. Is it just physical, or does she really like him? Time will tell. He rings the doorbell, and she answers in a white terry cloth robe. Time has told. Boom, they're in the sack again. He performs well, or so he thinks, what with all the screaming and scratching. They order out Chinese and argue over the last mushu. Have I told you about my twins, he asks. How wonderful, she says. They're difficult to handle, he says. They gang up on me. I try to give them what they want, but they always want more. She says she loves twins. And did he ever stop to think that maybe, just maybe, what they're asking for is not so terrible since it's probably what their friends have, and you know how susceptible teens are to peer pressure. They each want a Porsche. Well, she allows, that is a bit excessive. 
He tells her about the memo and the son-of-a-bitch boss who hasn't bothered to read it yet. Some people, she says. You can move in here, she adds, apropos of nothing. Roger's out of the way, rehab or something. Until Gloria moves out of the house, or hell, give her the damn house. What about the mortgage, he asks. No mortgage, Lucky says. We own it free and clear. No, I mean my mortgage. We're paying whether you live... You're paying whether you live there or not. What's the diff? Carlton doesn't like the way she says things like the diff. As if a couple more syllables would be too much for a bur of a burden. But nobody's perfect, he thinks. Nobody's perf. He laughs. Someone once told him he had a great sense of humor. Rodney and Teresa blow a gasket. You're moving out, they shout in unison. It's better this way, Carlton says. Less strain on the family. But what about us? What are we supposed to do? Your mother's still here. You don't speak to me anyway, except to ask for money. You probably won't notice the change. But Mom's mean, and she's a dork. Well, you can't stay with Lucky and me, but we'll get together. You've got my cell. On Monday, the boss calls him in, really pissed about the memo. I asked for it last week, he says. It's been on your desk for almost a week, Carlton rejoins. Boss sits. Looks like a teaching moment. It's not enough to do the memo and drop it on my desk, is it? You have to make sure I know it's on my desk, right? All the while, Carlton is doing his nodding thing. On the way out of the boss's office, the boss's secretary, a nubile looker named Hortense, smiles and says they should have lunch. I'm married and in a relationship, Carlton says, but then has second thoughts, and strictly speaking, he's not married, and in terms of office politics, it may be smart to get in good, so to speak, with the boss's secretary, so that memos don't get lost on desk, on desks, if you know what I mean. And so they are banging at Motel 6 when his cell rings, and it's Gloria. I want you back, she says. This divorce shit isn't working. Come home. I'll tone down the sex and stuff. Carlton is at sixes and sevens, maybe more. He doesn't know which way to turn. Do the right thing, his mother had told him. His father always said, watch out for number one. He decides to do both, he thinks, hanging up on Gloria. Let's go, he whispers to Hortense. He drops her off at the office and keeps on going. Robert Sachs received his MFA in writing from Spalding University and has had stories published in such magazines as Mobius, The Front Porch Review, The Writing Disorder, and Red Fez. Such Simple Words, written and read by Len Kruger. Listening time, 11 minutes, 34 seconds. Such Simple Words by Len Kruger. It happens at the 89th Annual Summer Conference. During the plenary session, you seize the microphone and deliver a brilliant insight on the intricate relationship between trade deficits and monetary exchange rates. Then you tell the deputy U.S. trade representative, quote, there is not a particle of sense in anything you have said to us today, unquote. The end comes quickly. Counseling memo, employee assistance program, separation. You go home. You clean your apartment. You call yourself an international trade consultant and establish a home office in your bedroom and print business cards. You wait for business to come streaming in. It doesn't. One night you awake with pains in your chest. An ambulance takes you to the emergency room. They give you your diagnosis. Acid reflux, they say. Anxiety. Such terms of comfort you reflect as a taxi drives you home that night. Such cruel irony. A year passes. You reflect. How could the 90th Annual Summer Conference not be different from the 89th Annual Summer Conference in a very significant way? 
You sit at your kitchen table and lay out the two brochures side by side, the 89th and the 90th. The 90th brochure promises a famous continental breakfast, 8 o'clock to 8.45. The 89th brochure did not modify the words continental breakfast with the adjective famous, and breakfast was allotted only a half hour. Was it therefore unreasonable to assume that the famous continental breakfast of the 90th annual summer conference would be unprecedented in scope and quality? You think on the possibilities. Continental breakfast. Europe, Asia, Africa, the Americas, North and South. Perhaps there will be a smorgasbord of international delights served by chefs in white hats. How could there not be steam tables? How could there not? You ride the metro downtown, hugging a black knapsack on your lap. It contains a single item, a collapsible Tupperware bowl. You watch blank faces reading newspapers or staring at the black void of the tunnel wall whizzing by. What are the odds you'll be blown up by a terrorist on the morning of the famous Continental Breakfast? It would be the cruelest of ironies. Such simple words can mean so much, say a kindly female voice on the loudspeaker. If you see an un unattended package, says the voice, you are instructed to ask the person in closest proximity, is that your bag? The intonation, is that your bag, seems endearing, as if the friendly female voice will then say, would you be my friend? At 7.31 a.m., you walk into the Washington Convention Center and approach the sign-in table, its surface blanketed with a bumper crop of bright yellow plastic name tags ready to be harvested. You feel as if wonderful things are about to happen. Good morning, you sing out to the young woman behind the desk. I'm ready for your famous continental breakfast. Ha, she laughs, handing you a name tag. You sign your name on the sign-in sheet. You are the first. How are you today, sir, she says with a warm and friendly smile. Fantastic, you reply. Enterprise room, she says, around that corner and to your right. Help yourself to the breakfast. Thank you so much, you say. In your heart, you wish her all the best life has to offer. You read her name tag, Allison. Maybe you will talk to this Allison after the continental breakfast. Maybe you will save her a ligonberry croissant and offer it to Allison during the 10-15 break. Wow, thanks, she'll say, shocked to see human kindness reveal itself. Well, you'll say, chuckling, there's more where that came from. Then you'll pause and say, actually, there isn't. And then maybe she will laugh again. Ha! You walk into the Enterprise room. Strange. Last year at the 89th Annual Summer Conference... You were in the Enterprise Room, and it was, as it has always been, an undistinguished conference room with long gray tables and blank windowless walls. But today it is transformed. To the right, a massive picture window bestows a stunning view of the Jefferson Memorial, ringed by pink cherry blossoms swaying in the gentle morning breeze. Overhead is a magnificent chandelier, positioned like some sparkling celestial body. At the front of the room is a towering podium, magisterial like a pulpit. An array of oak desks gleam brightly, meticulously arranged in nested wide arcs. Along the back of the Enterprise Room, the famous Continental Breakfast beckons, those silver steam tables like bright jewels reflecting the sparkling lights of the grand chandelier. A smiling chef motions towards you, his white hat sprouting from his head. Sir, the chef says, pointing his pearl-handled carving knife at the succulent mound of beef. Please, you say. The knife slices through the pink meat effortlessly. The chef motions towards the silver trays. What else, sir? Each is labeled with an elegant hand lettering that reminds you of a wedding invitation or a birth announcement. Roasted potatoes with tomato chutney. Green curry prawns with caramelized salsify. Arugula with onion seed vinaigrette. I'll have it all, you say. Your plate full, you sit at one of the fine oak desks. The desktop is cold and smooth on your hand, like a slab of fine marble. Its polished surface is like a mirror. You can see a whole other world deep within its reflection. The plate of food at the top, 
your face, the chandelier, and the tiled ceiling stretching downward. What if there was a skylight overhead, you wonder? Would you not see heaven at the very bottom? You eat. The steamship round of beef is fork tender, first rate, the finest piece of meat you have ever tasted. You examine the pen and paper set before you. The gold cross pen fits your hand perfectly. You wonder, has the pen been designed for your hand, or has your hand been designed for the pen? Ha! You sign your name on a blank page. The pen seems to glide over the fine Italian stationery effortlessly, frictionlessly. Not unlike, you reflect, the magnetically levitated bullet trains in Osaka, Japan that zoom along at 300 kilometers per hour and contribute critical efficiency to the Japanese economy, constituting yet another reason why the future of the U.S. economy is dire and why, yes indeed, why, you think shaking your head vigorously, there truly was not a particle of sense in anything that the deputy U.S. trade representative had said last year at the 89th annual summer conference. The enterprise room fills with attendees. You look at the faces, surprised that you recognize no one. What has happened to all your acquaintances and colleagues? Those familiar faces you've seen year after year, progressively grayer, more stooped, more wrinkled. And why was nobody eating steamship round of beef? Just, just muffins, bagels, coffee. You draw an oversized question mark on the fine Italian stationery. What kind of person would eat a bran muffin when there is so much more? Who can resist the steamship round of beef? You peer across the room at the newly installed CEO, one Mr. Frank Kreutzer. In the conference brochure, his face is in profile. His chin strong and prominent, like a clean-shaven Abraham Lincoln. You thumb through the handout packet. According to the CV, Frank Kreutzer was born and bred in the farmlands of southwestern Iowa. Did not farmers eat hearty continental breakfasts after hours of hard work in the fields? You reflect on the Energy Policy Act of 2005, which amended the Uniform Time Act of 1966, to move the commencement of daylight saving time to the second Sunday in March, thereby depriving farmers of their precious early morning daylight. Is that what this breakfast is about? Perhaps. I want to welcome each and every one of you, Frank Kreutzer says from behind the podium. I think you'll find we've put together some first-rate panels. You decide you should immediately revisit the buffet and procure an additional portion of steamship round of beef, which you'll, you will put into the collapsible Tupperware bowl inside your black knapsack. You reach under your chair. But the knapsack is gone. You feel panic. You feel a shadow of a wrinkle of pain in your chest. Did you leave it on the metro? Yes, that must be it. Your black knapsack is unattended and it has shut down the metro. At this very moment, a remote-controlled robot is piercing the polyester nylon fabric of the knapsack. The SWAT team is carefully extracting the Tupperware bowl and noting that it is collapsible. The word collapsibility will appear in the official report. They will put the bowl in a gas chromatograph and analyze the chemical residue. You reflect on the trace parts per million of all the different types of residues that have ever resided within the collapsible bowl. Meatloaf with mushroom gravy, chicken tetrazzini, macaroni and cheese with chicken of the sea chunk light tuna fish. All of these individual molecules are unique, but hadn't they been mixed endlessly over the years, subjected to light, darkness, heat, cold? Add a few carbon atoms to the mix, crisscross a few molecular bonds, and who knows, voila, anthrax, rice, and C4 explosive. In your signed confession, you will tell the Department of Homeland Security authorities that your ex-wife bought the bowl at a Tupperware party because she felt, quote, sorry, for the Tupperware lady because it was, in her words, quote, just so hard having your own business and not knowing if you would ever have anything that anyone would pay you for, unquote. The lights go up. The PowerPoint projector shuts off. The plenary session entitled Our Nation's Crumbling Infrastructure has concluded. Is there any way the authorities could connect you to your unattended black knapsack? Your fingerprints are all over the collapsible Tupperware bowl, but you have no criminal record and surely your fingerprints do not reside in any criminal database. 
But then you remember that on your first day of employment at the Department of Commerce, you were indeed fingerprinted. Standard procedure, they said. Routine. Is it possible that the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI could access the fingerprint records of the Department of Commerce? They could. How could they not? You feel sweat beating on your forehead. You enter the men's room and stand at a urinal. A man approaches the urinal next to yours. The man unzips the trousers of his elegant Italian suit. The man is one Mr. Frank Kreutzer, CEO. You stare straight into your urinal. It is crystalline and transparent. You can see an impossible array of pipes twisting away, splitting and joining and splitting again into intricate networks far off into the distance. Like tree branches, you think. Blood vessels. You feel dizzy. You take a deep breath. You identify yourself in a loud and clear voice. I am currently a private consultant and was previously an economic analyst with the Department of Commerce. I'm delighted to meet you, Mr. Kreutzer. The pleasure is all mine, says the southwestern Iowa-bred Kreutzer. Please call me Frank. Frank, you say. Frank, I want to compliment you on this year's famous continental breakfast. It is excellent. Thank you. The steamship round of beef? Superb. All for you, my boy. All for you. You zip up. He zips up. You once had a crackling of pain in your chest, acid reflux and anxiety, a most potent combination. But there's no time for that now. This is your moment. You know, Frank, you say, I find it rather a delicious irony that Steamship Round of Beef happens to be very relevant to this conference. As you may know, Steamship Round of Beef originated in the maritime industry, which, as we know, is facing stiff foreign competition as, in fact, very much an intrinsic component of our nation's crumbling infrastructure. Frank Kreutzer's eyes twitch and widen as if they are little cameras taking a picture. Do you have a business card, he asks? Your cell phone rings, the ringtone like an old-fashioned rotary telephone ringing endlessly in some humble farmland abode. Hello, you answer, answering the phone. But the signal's weak. You hear intermittent static and a faint whisper of menacing words. What, you say into the phone? What? You look up from the phone and Frank Kreutzer is gone. Your hands shake and your knees wobble as you hurry out of the bathroom, looking for a window in the lobby where the signal will be strong and vital. The pains in your chest sharpen and spread. You pass Allison sitting at the sign-in table. Sir, she says. You stop. Yes, you say, gasping. You can hardly breathe. She points to your black knapsack propped against the base of the wall behind her, sprawled there like a small dead animal. Her voice is endearing and familiar, like an old friend. Is that your bag? Len Kruger's short stories have appeared in a number of publications, including Zoetrope All Story, The Barcelona Review, and forthcoming in Gargoyle. He lives in Washington, D.C., Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Kern Family Endowed Fund and the President's Fund of the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off, copyright Bound Off and the respective authors, all rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories. <laughs>